Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 76 on behavioural economics and COVID. My guest today is Dr. Stephen White from the Queensland University of Technology, QUT, in Brisbane, Australia. Stephen, good to have you on the program. Hi, Gene. How are you? Excellent, thanks. Stephen, I'm looking forward to chatting with you today about behavioural economics and COVID. I know that you've done some interesting research on how people have reacted to all of the COVID measures, the social distancing, the mask wearing requirements, and you've linked that to people, if I remember the interview you did on ABC about this correctly, you linked it to people's personality traits. And And I'd like to chat with you about that research in a moment. But first, it'd be good to get us an idea of um, what sort of, you know, broadly what field you're working in. I know you've done work in behavioural economics and I know that QUT has a capability in behavioural economics. Would you be able to take us through that first, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a behavioural economist in the Centre for Behavioural Economics, Society and Technology. It's the best centre, possibly the most gaudy acronym you could possibly have. But um, yeah, it's one of two major behavioural econ centres um, in Australia, one in Brisbane at QUT and one at Monash. Um, and essentially, uh, I do work in I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I do work in any form of applied microeconomics. So I'm interested in how human behaviour as a behavioralist can um, inform policy or inform um, health outcomes or educational outcomes. Um, and I think the, the research that you're referring to, um, we just had published in a, uh, in a personality psychology journal, um, looking at how at a macro level, how different traits um, impact regulatory compliance. So, you know, movement when uh, the first wave of COVID came in uh, last year in Australia between March and June, how the regulatory um, changes at a state level or um, nationally um, impacted people's behaviour. But I think even before we could, you know, start to talk about that, I think the big success story of um, you know, behavioural science and, and um, combating COVID has been um, the social sciences. You know, the epidemiological work that's been done has been incredible to, you know, to produce a vaccine um, globally and roll out millions and millions um, of doses of that has been incredible, but really combating COVID for the last, um, well, 14 months, 15 months uh, has been a behavioural response, uh, looking at how um, governments can understand how people behave, um, how they can help um, regulate people's behaviour to reduce transmission, how we, they can you know, encourage people to be proactive in their own um, behaviours like social distancing and hand washing. Um, behavioural science really has sort of led um, and, the, and the, you know, the Australian um, response has sort of been the go-to response around the world, even with quarantining, 14-day quarantining. I think that um, you know, we've done an amazing job here in Australia, particularly because it's been a behavioural response. Right. Okay. So you're saying that we've actually thought about how people will react to these measures and we've designed the measures to maximise compliance with them. Is that is that what you're saying? 
Well, I think we've been good at understanding, um, you know, as hard as lockdowns have been, um, the Australian population has been very open to um, these sorts of, you know, uh, the media may call them knee-jerk reactions or, um, you know, over uh, overreactions by the government, but we've been very good at um, just the um, interpersonal behaviours like social distancing, like, um, you know, washing our hands, things that um, in maybe in other economies, um, you know, globally um, that different societies have struggled with. Um, the research that we, we looked into, we looked at uh, personality traits and how, um, you know, mean differences in national personality traits impact regulatory compliance. So we had Google mobility data and we looked at um, people's movements or restrictions of their own movements in relation to um, when the first wave started here in Australia, approximately March and April of last year. And what we found was that Australians tended to be, or Australians on average, are, are, tend to be more extroverted and they also tend to be more agreeable. And if you think about those two traits, they're sort of maybe a little bit dichotomous. Um, you would expect extroverted people to be more um, maybe more risk-seeking or, you know, re less regulatory compliant. Um, but what we found is, is one of the reasons Australia has fared so well is that we have followed, um, you know, these pro-social behaviours that the that policymakers have tried to uh, or asked us, asked us to do at a macro level. Okay. So on personality traits, uh, the data you've used, are they data on the big, is it the the five? Yeah, the big five. Big yeah, big five. five. So extroversion, openness, um, emotional stability, agreeableness. Uh, I've forgotten one. Is it conscientiousness? <laughs> conscientiousness, yeah, yeah. And yeah, but, uh, yeah. Uh, neuroticism, so it's neuroticism, the ocean so, model. Yeah. yeah, ocean model. So neuroticism, now they've reformed it, it because it's such a negative trait. Uh, they've re renamed it as a positive one. They call it emotional stability, which is the other end of the spectrum. But, yeah, exactly right. It's ocean is the acronym. Okay, okay. Now, Australians, well, we think we've got this tradition of larrikinism or anti-authoritarianism. So one of our great, one of the great stories in Australian history is the story of the Eureka Stockade. But your research suggests that that may not actually be the case. We're, we're actually quite compliant or we're willing to, to accept these government regulations. Is that right? I think it's, it, again, it's sort of a dichotomy in, in that, you know, we talk about what are our, you know, national personas. Um, you know, the Aussie larrikin is sort of seen as this, like you said, this sort of anti-establishment, um, you know, very much pokes fun at, um, at authoritarian positions and authority. Um, but it, there's also to, you know, if you think about the larrikin, it's sort of that laid-back attitude, that la uh, laissez-faire. Um, so, I mean... It's, a, it's an interesting question. Does, does our own Australian identity impact our ability to, um, you know, operate in a pro-social way? I would say yes, you know, because whether you can pick, you know, historical events throughout Australian history, uh, the Eureka Stockade's a great one. Um, to me, a lot of those tend to revolve around mateship, you know, this ideal uh, ideology that um, someone's ringing me on the phone, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, this idea that, um, you know, we, we act in a pro-social way, um, which that's what mateship is. So, um, you know, to think that, um, and this is where a lot of the marketing campaigns, social marketing campaigns, I think will move um, 
you know, as the vaccine rolls out on, on trying to get these so-called, um, you know, vaccine-hesitant groups, I think they'll move towards a pro-social um, behavioural response because that, that's more likely to impact people's, you know, social conscience in relation to um, acting, you know, in their own best interest but also acting in the best interest of society. Okay, so we've got this idea of mateship here of... Uh of social responsibility or uh, i wouldn't say social responsibility because i don't think that like when i think about um you know the aussie larrikin or, or the the personas that um historically like i always think of hoags you know and crocodile mm. dundee when i think of um, the aussie larrikin um i wouldn't say it has a great social responsibility but certainly has a responsibility to um to mateship and, and the yeah. ideals of um uh you know pro-social behaviour. That, that isn't regulatory behaviour, um, which, you know, is different. So um, I don't think that, you know, I mean, I'm in Queensland, I'm very lucky. Um, you know, the Victorian lockdowns, I think four consecutive lockdowns or five consecutive lockdown periods now, and one of, one of them extended for several months. Um, I wouldn't say that everyone there is really super happy about, um, you know, being pro-social, but, you know, the, the, the broader... Um, and mateship feeds into, um, is one of the ways to feed into this pro-social behaviour. Okay. So what countries did you examine in your in your research, Stephen? Uh, so I'll put a link to this paper in the show notes. What country? So I guess one country I'd be interested in chatting about because of many of my listeners are in the US is the US and it'd be good to get a sense of what you, you what you found about the US, if that's in the data set and or what your thoughts are on how um, people... So, yep. so, so for that very reason, as an academic and from independence, scientific independence, we didn't single out particular countries or talk about specific countries. What we talked about was countries higher in particular traits or, or regions in relation to um, uh, social psychology and anthropology call it like looseness or tightness. Um, so, you know, countries where it's more socially acceptable to maybe not comply with the rules. Um, and, you know, Australia is a, is a good example of that too. You know, we, we may be effectively more of a, a looser country in relation to how we um, view authoritarian positions in, in relation to regulatory behaviour. Um, no, I didn't, I, I value my career in economics, so I deliberately didn't rank um, other countries, I'm sorry, but um, but the paper is, is pretty self-explanatory in relation to um, you know how different personality traits impact, or, or you know in this sample um, are seen to impact regulatory behaviour. Right. Okay. But are those data are available. What regarding? Yeah. Yeah. So you can you can the Google Mobility data is um, is available. There's a repository. Uh, science repository that you can download that from um, and the big five personality traits you can get them from the world values survey um, it's taken annually um, all of the all of this data is is readily available if anybody wanted to do the research okay so so you didn't you didn't comment it on the paper but is it fair to say that uh, I mean one of the challenges that they've had in the the US is that it appears that there's a large proportion of the population that has been reluctant to follow some of the guidelines regarding whether that's social distancing or mask wearing. Uh, one of the things I found extraordinary was just the all of the gatherings over this Thanksgiving 
uh, weekend, uh, I was really surprised that, that all those people were travelling, given that COVID was still was still out there. Do you have any thoughts on that yourself? On why we've seen such a spread um, in in the US? Yeah, and if it's related to the uh, the sort of anti-government or the, the the sort of revolutionary origins of America. I think that very early on in the um, uh, in when the first wave hit the US in about March of last year, um, the Trump administration really talked about um, not having any sort of economic um, impacts. You know that they weren't going to close things off. Um, that you know people should still travel and engage, and the economy should still tick along. Um, and then again, the Trump administration had some closures um, and. At, a, at or around about that time, um, the uh, Biden started wearing face masks and it started to become uh, a political instead of a health issue. Mm. And, and, and mask wearing became um, a sort of, uh, you know, ideological scepter for, um, for conservatives to, to say, well, you know, this is infringing on my civil liberties, I shouldn't have to cover my face. Um, where all of the research shows that, um, you know, wearing masks reduces the likelihood of transmission. Um, so then you had that. Um, and, I mean, we all know what happened last year, you know, just in the uh, domestic political climate in the US. Um, it was a pretty crazy year, 2020. So it, it's, it's not surprising then that it, it sort of maybe spiralled out of control where you had, um, you know, a, sort of the perfect storm it would be for a pandemic transmission because you had large amounts of people who were just saying, well, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm going to continue to go about my business. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not surprised that they've seen such a horrific amount of, um, of deaths compared to other countries. Mm, okay. So I'd like to go back to like, what does this all mean for policy? So you've done this research, which, which shows that, Personality traits are linked to, well, behaviour. They drive behaviour. And that means that some countries will have more success with particular policies than others. Um, I mean, what does it mean practically? If you've got a country that that where there isn't or, or that's more individualistic, does that mean you have to appeal to different motives do you have to change is it or is it just impossible to for governments to persuade or not impossible because you'd always that there'd be means to do things but if you don't want to have a totalitarian response is is it is it almost impossible to reach some people or, or are there things you can do uh gene we're both economists so you know that we both have multiple opinions so yes and no i, yeah. <laughs> both, I disagree but um i think that um again if i go back to you know What's been successful in relation to reducing transmission and reducing um, the death rate? Well, that's that's behavioural responses. Um, you know, uh, my colleague here, Professor Torgler, um, wrote a, a paper back in April last year about vaccination passports. Um, that, you know, so far ahead of the game. Now we're talking about it a year later. Um, how are we going to encourage people in this sort of vaccine hesitancy group, whether that's at a national level or, you know, countries who have larger amounts of um, vaccine hesitant people? Monash produced a report last week that says in Australia, approximately one in five people are vaccine hesitant. Um, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that these people won't get vaccinated. I think, I mean, myself, I probably fall into the vaccine hesitant group. I, I, be, I truly believe in the epidemiological work in the science and, and the advertising campaigns that I don't know if you've currently seen it that's coming out from the federal government has multiple scientists. They have doctors and epidemiologists, um, you know, frontline health workers, all of these people talking about the health benefits. And I think that that's great. But that doesn't really change my opinion in relation to well, what is the cognitive bias that I'm employing that's stopping me from thinking rationally about this, that the vaccine is in my best interest, in my children's best interest, in society's best interest. And I think the, the government uh, and the health sector, um, whether that's in Australia or wherever, needs to think more behaviourally around or how are we going to target these groups? Or why? How can we understand why they're hesitant? What is the bias that they're employing? Um, and, and, you know, we don't have anyone uh, at the moment, or this is where I think the camp ad campaign should go, is um, there should be people who have undergone the vaccine um, talking with uh, or advertising to, you know, a marketing campaign is, is about awareness. Like I'm not an advertiser or a social marketer, but it's about bringing awareness. And we don't need awareness that a vaccine is, is good. What you need is behaviour change. So you need to find whatever it is, whatever mechanism to pull on, on these people who have this hesitancy um, to get them to change their behaviour. And I think one of the good ways to do that would be to introduce people that have undergone the vaccine and show people, hey, I'm okay, I had the vaccine. You know, my arm didn't fall off. Um, I didn't grow a third ear. I'm fine. And um, But, you know, it will be a while before we do that. I think the media's, you know, the... the Political media is good at doing that. We saw the Prime Minister um, a couple of days ago given the V for victory um, when he got first got the vaccine. And I think you'll see more of that, more people, you know, pictures of them getting the jab in the shoulder and talking with people about how, you know, it's, it's successful and it's not harmful and et cetera. Yeah. So you mentioned a cognitive bias. What's the cognitive bias here that we're, we're afraid, we're uh, for thing where we don't know, where we lack the information, or we don't understand how it works, we're very reluctant to to undertake a course of action. Is yeah, that- I, think, I think there's a lot here. I mean, the, the easy go-to one is risk aversion. Yeah, um, you know, we really it, it's hard to weigh up um, or sum uh, the utility or the, the the marginal benefit for the individual or for society. Um, I know uh, Gigi Foster, professor at UNSW, was talking last year about you know um, you know quality adjusted life years and how we make decisions as economists. I mean, sometimes we're attacked as economists because you know we sort of want to quantify cost and value and um, you know making these hard economic decisions. So I think it's hard to um, if you think about a risk averse position with a consumer who is you know they're a consumer of a health product which is the vaccine. How do we show them? the value for them as an individual and how do we show them the value for society? And I think that would then counterbalance this um, this risk aversion that they're seeing. But I imagine that, I mean, there's lots and lots of bias that people are employing or, or are not cognizant of their, um, in their decision process to be hesitant. Yes, yes. So, I mean, there are a range of opinions on this. So there are the full-on anti-vaccination People and we've seen yeah, yeah. some protests the, in Australia. The, the, and, the Pete Evans types, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, it seems in that case there's this distrust of government. They've, they've got a distrust of yeah, 
Yeah, well, I mean, these are people that think that the 5G network is is giving us cancer and that the COVID, um, these people won't change. They're not, mm. the government shouldn't be targeting anti-vaxxers. Um, they were anti-vaxxers before the pandemic. They'll be anti-vaxxers after. Um, the idea is not to target or, or the government shouldn't be targeting these people because we have herd immunity. If we can get up around 85 and 90% um, vaccination rates, well, then this other, and I, it's less than 10%, you know, small um, amount of the community um, that, that will not be vaccinated and refuse to be vaccinated, that's okay. Yeah, okay. And th- but then there's this broader group, and so I've seen some of the polls on news.com.au and like, there's this larger group of people who say, well, let everyone else get the vaccine first and I'll, I'll wait <laughs> yeah. because I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, what I would the- say I fall into – Do you, would you say you fall? I fall into that group. I want to wait and see. I'm a bit of the doubting Thomas. Yeah. Um, I, I just like to – again, I believe in the science and, um, and, I, and I trust in the regulatory processes, especially the medical ones, um, you know, that, that this hasn't been rushed um, and, you know, epidemiological science has dedicated itself across the last 12 months to to roll it out for us. We should be thankful. We shouldn't be questioning them. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely will probably sit on the fence and wait. But, again, I'm not in a high-risk group. Mm. So, again, it's this trade-off of risk. Um, you know, I have a colleague here um, at QUT and he's 75 and he said, no, he'll be, he'll be running out straight away to get it as soon as he can. Um, so it's this trade-off between your own, uh, your own level of risk and um, your decision to immediately, if, if you're able to. Yeah, we'll be uh, we'll probably be among the last to, to get it anyway. Uh, I'm just wondering about you know what what's the best way to reach people because you know some of the reluctance is that oh we're just not sure about the fa- how whether it's safe and I mean we've got all the authorities saying it's safe. I mean, do you tell people well there's been rigorous testing and there's been um, you know, we've got all of these new techniques uh, that we didn't have. 50 years ago, which allow us to produce these vaccines so much more quickly now. Is it about information or is it about like, that's one thing you can do or is it about pushing the button and, and saying, well, this is for the good of the of your community, this is for uh, for your mates? Is, it, is that the best button to push? Uh, yeah, I would. I mean, again, I'm a behavioural economist, so I genuflect towards, um, you know, understanding holistically more um, the behavioural side. Um, there's lots of lots of discussions, you know, uh, we could go back to the neoclassical um, econ arguments about, well, we could regulate it, um, we could enforce it. There was discussion on um, free-to-air TV last night or the night before around um, employers saying, well, if you don't have the jab, you can't come to work. I think that's a very, very dangerous um, area to get into that, that your employer must regulate your health choices. Um, the government, like, I mean, for any other externality, um, you know, usually governments just create a market for a, for an alternative. You think about energy, um, you know, we have electricity, the government regulates um, uh, subsidies for the alternative market. And, um, you know, you have a bit of grandfathering in relation to things like um, fossil fuels. And then you, again, this neoclassical argument, and you just phase out the old, the alternative. Here, it's very different. We have a, this new technology that, that, need, that has been created very quickly, uh, and we need people to take it, um, to, you know, to consume it uh, pretty much effectively straight away. Um, so, you know, we don't have the luxury of time in creating a market for something that we would have done um, from a regulatory sense as, you know, very standard 
uh, neoclassical economics would do. Um, so yeah, I think the behavioural side is um, is the way to go. How or, or what um, what will specifically drive people? I mean, you can fall back on the mateship um, all you want, and then again, yeah, there'll be there'll be a chunk of people inside that group. Uh, inside the vaccine hesitancy group will say, yeah, uh, you know, that, that's that'll drive me to do it. But then there'll be others too, you know, and that's, that's you know, that's what's great about our species, the variance um, of behaviour. So, yeah, I think it, it, it needs research, you know. It, um, you need to, to look into why these people are hesitant. Okay. Well, it's a fascinating field, Stephen, behavioural economics. I, was, I spoke with Professor Torgler last year about his uh, – uh, corona immunity certificates. I think that's a fascinating idea. I'll link to that discussion in the show notes. And Fantastic. Yeah, I've also chatted with Brendan Markey-Towler. He was working for a behavioural science business at, at one time. So, awesome. yes, it's good to chat about behavioural economics. It is uh, it's such an – and behavioural science, it is so important in understanding uh, just how, you know, how people make decisions and how we might, uh, you know – if we do need to, if we think it's there's a social good, if we think it's important for to try to encourage different behaviour, that's one. Instead of just using the traditional economic tools of, uh, say, uh, a Pagovian tax or or a subsidy of some kind, we can think of other other means to, uh, and possibly cheaper means to uh, to encourage uh, that behaviour. So I think it's yeah, I think I think that point's the key, isn't it? You know, um, people regulating themselves is the cheapest policy. Absolutely, um, and, and, and helping people to to make better decisions for themselves and for society is, is always going to be the best um, policy or outcome. So yeah, super interesting. Okay, anything before we wrap up, Stephen? Any other points from your research that would be good for us to know about? No, I think that's it. If, if um, yeah, if you could add the link to your podcast, that'd be fantastic. Will do. Okay, Dr. Stephen White from the Queensland University of Technology. Thanks so much for your time today. Great to talk to you, Jane. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Economics Explored podcast. If you're enjoying it, please tell your family and friends and please give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or on whatever platform you're listening on. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or to ask any questions, please email me at gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.